Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. How, how do we listen to God and how do we hear God? Uh, we normally listen to God by preparing ourselves. You know, you, you kind of try and quiet yourself down a little bit. You kind of maybe try and clear your mind of distractions. Maybe you, you get aside somewhere a bit quiet. And that, that's how we listen to God when we, we need to hear from him when we want something from him, when we want to get close to him. How we hear God, though, can be a little bit different to that. I'm sure Pastor Paul will back me up on this. The number of times when we've presented a gospel message or as a a preacher, he's preached the gospel to people who didn't come to listen. They came because someone invited them or they came by mistake or they were walking past and they were curious and they went in. They weren't coming in to listen but God's word is such that whether you're listening or not, you will hear. There was an occasion in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where a crowd of angry men came to, to Jesus with a woman that had been caught in sin. And they were trying to trap, they were trying to ensnare, they were trying to put Jesus in a position where he wouldn't have one of his normal amazing answers. And they thought they had him. They said, We've caught this woman in sin. What do you say that we should do? And Jesus, they thought, would have to say, either you go with what the law says and you stone her to death, or you ignore the law and break one of the commandments of God. And they thought, we've got him now. He's trapped. And Jesus kind of like ignored him a little bit, uh, kept him waiting a little bit. And then he just looked up and he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. None of those people were there to hear that. They were there for their reasons, their purposes, their anger, their resentment. They're trying to trap Jesus. But they ended up hearing the word of God. And hearing the word of God is the most important kind of hearing that we can do. It doesn't happen when we always expect it. It doesn't even always happen when we're looking for it. Sometimes it jumps up on us and grabs us, wrestles us to the ground and takes us in a totally different direction to where we thought we were going to be going. That's what the Word of God does. The reason people hear the Word of God, even when they're not looking for it or seeking it, is because we were all made by God. And in every single human being, there is something that recognizes God. No matter how much you try and push Him away, no matter how much you harden your heart, no matter how far you think you've gone from him, we're all made by God. So when we really hear God's word, it hits home. None of those men in that crowd pretended they had no sin. None of them answered back because they knew straight away, this is true, this is real, this is God's word. And so they walked away realizing that just as they were condemned, they no longer had the right to condemn anyone else. We're going to continue today, after that brief introduction, to look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. But I'm going to pray for us that today we would hear the word of God. Whatever it might be to us, that we would hear what God is saying to us, because God's word always affects change. Heavenly Father, I pray for every one of us here. We are completely dependent on you. We don't really understand anything without you. 
we don't really have anything without you. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us where we are empty, strengthen us where we are weak, comfort us where we are disturbed and distracted. And Lord, that our hearts today, by your grace, would be drawn close to you. That we would know you are real, that we would know your power is great, and that where we are failing, we would know your restoration. Because Lord, you have called us to your side for your glory. Amen. So, Isaiah, a little reminder, as each of us has preached, we've, we've done a, a little bit of a recap because it's important to understand the context of a lot of the things we're talking about. Just as we are in a world of, of confusion, tumult, you've heard it said, so was Isaiah in his time. There were wars and rumors of wars. There were the rise and fall of empires. There were great leaders who seemed to be all powerful, leading their armies, sweeping across and wiping out little nations that had no choices. All these things were going on in the same way that things go on like that today. And at times people would have felt adrift. People would have felt alone. People would have felt fearful, not just of what was happening, but of what was going to come. And there would be times when people would think well, there is no hope. There is no, no way forward in this. And that's the kind of context that Isaiah is speaking, his stream of different messages into the nation. People were beginning to despair. And so God's word was necessary as the antidote to that despair. The picture that came to my mind when I was thinking of what people are like in these sort of situations then and now. You know when you're looking out to sea and it's a stormy day and there's a little rock and the waves are battering it and the waves cover it and then the waves go away and the rock's still there and you think to yourself, that rock is not what I would like to be. I don't want to be battered and swept over by the storm continually with never any hope of any kind of reprieve. That's just the way it is. And that's what people sometimes feel like now and certainly then, people, people groups, communities had this sense of almost being under siege. During this, this message, I'm going to have a couple of illustrations and quite a big chunk of exposition. I thought I'd like to throw in a few big words. I haven't got many this morning. That's, that's the main one, to be honest. Any other big words I use are likely to be ones that I've made up. So if you hear a word and you don't recognize it, don't immediately check it on Google thingy on, on your phone. And think, Hang on, that's not a real word, because it may not be real. I've just thrown it out there. Just maybe you might want to use it with your friends, introduce it as a new one, maybe. But the first illustration I want to use is an observation, something that I saw going back a couple of months ago. And it's, I call it the story of the two I see. Two I see, second in commands, uh, is I noticed, I observed the worst job you could get in an infantry section. Uh, I observed, and again, to give it a little bit of context, the, the person that I observed this in is a young 18-year-old lad. Uh, he's been uh, an infantryman fully qualified for three, four months when this, this took place. He was a new, a new soldier. And uh, we're doing a three-day training exercise uh, on infantry section attacks. 
Now, you've probably heard it said, uh, it doesn't, it's not just used in, in military circles, but how very often plans are very effective right up to the first point of contact when everything falls apart and you've got to respond and adapt. And I think this is where it comes from. Uh, because you're trained in, in the process of an attack, you're trained in the order of things that happen, and everyone knows their role, you know what your order of march is, you know where you are in the section, which part of which fire team you're on, you know all these things, and then the minute the contact first happens, everything goes up the wall. So on this particular occasion, I was three section, he was two section, they were just ahead of us, and he was charged with providing covering fire for the, the lead section that was going in on the initial assault on an enemy position. It's not real life, by the way, it's just a training exercise so I can talk about this. Nothing too bad happens in this. Uh, and th this young man is second IC. Section commanders, their job is to plan the attack. Their job is to have a strategy. Their job is to link with the other section commanders. The two IC, I discovered, does everything else. The two IC is kind of the dog's body, the one that has to sort out all the details. And I observed this, this young 18-year-old, he's, he's a good lad. He was, by the end of the week, he looked like he was in some kind of state of shock, but at this point, he's still okay. The attack starts, two section, get up on the ridge, provide overwatch, cover and fire, up they go. So they're running up this, this ridge. Ridges are always steeper when you're running up them, you notice that. And you've got your body armor on, and you've got your, your day sack, and you've got your, your rifle. So it's, it's quite heavy, you're quite tired, your heart's pounding, your muscles are burning. You get up to the top of the hill, you can hardly breathe, the blood's pounding in your ears. You look out, you glance back, you start to lay out your section, and they're all still at the bottom of the hill because the radios haven't worked properly, they didn't get the order. You run back down the hill. You say to them in no, not a gentle way, get up the hill, you need to be in position. You go back up the hill. Now you're really struggling. So you're at the top of the hill. As you get to the top of the hill, you get them laid out. The order comes from your radio, the only one that's now working. You need to move along to your right. There's been a second contact. You're now the lead assault team on that one. You get the men, you've just got up to go to the hill. Along the top of the hill, you can hardly walk now. You're going along, but you keep going. You get the picture. I was watching this. And then I was watching as you went through four or five different assaults on different positions, get to the end of the, the, what you think is the final one, you're in your recovery position, you've got your all-round defense, you can have a breather, two IC on me, the two IC is quarter to the section commanders, ammo stakes, how many grenades have you got left, how much water have you got, have you got any casualties, the two IC doesn't stop. He's checking out everyone's okay. He's going from one man to another. How many magazines have you got? How many grenades have you got less? Working his way around the section. Doesn't stop. Gets to the end of the evening. That's gone on all day. You've done that four or five times. You've been non-stop for, say, six and a half hours. You have to get the camp set up. The 2IC sets up the sentry rotor. The 2IC has to make sure that water's all right, it's distributed, that the track plan is set out inside the, the, the new temporary harbour that you've set up. All that is done. It's been non-stop. And I watched all this, and I watched this 18-year-old lad, and I thought to myself, at no point in the last eight hours has he stopped and thought, what do I feel about this? I'm too tired to do this. I'm fed up with this now. I'm fed up with someone shouting, two I see on me. It's three o'clock in the morning, and the, the sentry road has gone wrong, and someone's woken me up to say, I've not been relieved on sentry duty. I don't want to be bothered with that. I want to have my three hours of sleep. 
I was watching this and I was thinking, at some point in this young man's experience, a transition took place. He stopped being a good soldier, someone who did what he was told and followed the instructions that were given him. And he crossed a line and suddenly had a responsibility rooted in complete selflessness. At no point could he say, I don't really feel like that anymore. Uh, I'm going to stay asleep now because I'm not... It doesn't really matter that the sentry juice has got, have gone wrong because it's not real. It's only, it's only training. He couldn't and didn't do that. And I thought, that is a picture of two things for us. Picture number one. That tipping point is where we cross over from being an inquirer to being a disciple because anyone can dip their toe in and be interested. You know, at first, when, you, when I first came to church and I heard the gospel, I was very interested. I was intrigued. I was mesmerized. I started to hear things from the Bible. I thought, this is incredible. But I could dip in and then I could dip out. But there came a point, a point of commitment where I realized, hang on, if this is as incredible and amazing and wonderful as it seems to be, if it's real, I can't dip in and out anymore. I'm committed. I'm a part of it. I belong. And suddenly, there is significance to the decisions and choices that I make. A line that we don't always know for sure, we know when it's happened, but we can't tell exactly where it is, is crossed when you go from being an inquirer, an interested person, to being a disciple. And that word significance is one we're going to come back to quite a lot. Who feels significant this morning? Anyone? No one. I do. I'm quite significant because you have to listen to me, so I've got an advantage there. I hope by the end of this short yeah I'm, all, I'm doing alright so far relatively short time uh, you'll feel confident enough to say you are significant the title of the, the word this morning is woe to the destroyer and I've added a little subtitle to that why every life really counts we know the slogan every life counts but I want to say this morning every life really does count Are you ever tempted in the midst of your walk with Jesus, in the midst of following Jesus, to ask the sorts of questions, what about me? I'm not really liking this. I'm not really happy about this. What about my happiness? What about my peace? Are you ever tempted to ask those questions? You know, the, the kind of, I'm not going to run up the hill again now. I'm not going to run back and get them who haven't done what they're meant to be doing. I'm not really... We do ask these questions from time to time. Let's jump into Isaiah. Chapter 33. We're going to stay here for a while, so you might want to leave it open because we're going to work right through the chapter now. Verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. It's kind of a general truth that 
bad things will happen to bad people. A general truth there. But there's also a very specific truth in this word that Isaiah is declaring to the people. Go back to what I said before. They're in a chaotic situation. They're in a situation of stress and worry. And he's saying, the destroyer will be destroyed. The betrayer will be betrayed. Sennacherib, the commander of the Assyrian army, had accepted tribute from Judah, but had betrayed the implied treaty and attacked them anyway. He betrayed, he'd been a traitor to an agreement. And now this destroyer of nations was coming against them. And the word of Isaiah says, the destroyer, when he stops destroying, will be destroyed. The betrayer, when he stops betraying, will be betrayed. There was no reason particularly for hope, but that would be not just a general truth, it would be a specifically fulfilled truth, because this man, this destroyer, this betrayer, would very shortly be both betrayed, his sons would betray him, and destroyed, because they would assassinate him. It was a specific word that Isaiah spoke into this situation, but it was also a general truth as well. Verses two and four. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. At the thunder of your voice, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. In this, Isaiah's articulating both a, a plea to God combined with a recognition that all the nations are vulnerable. People are right to feel fearful and afraid. In times of chaos, in times of tumult, people are right to feel these things because none of the nations are dependable or reliable. We heard when Pastor preached last, last Sunday how at times the people forgot to put their trust in their gods and instead put their trust in Egypt or the other nations around them and how badly that went. The nations themselves, even those that seem powerful, are unreliable, undependable and vulnerable. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. There's this praise and recognition of the Lord and his strength and in his might that contrasts with the vulnerability and the changeability of the nations. You've now got this, this understanding that God is truly great. Now, the people know these things. They've been taught these things from scriptures as they had them since childhood. But they needed at this time to hear someone in the midst of the chaos standing up and saying, this is still true. God is still real. There will be an end to this, what you're experiencing, to this, what you're seeing now. God is still in control. Verses 7 to 9. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. 
The treaty is broken, its witnesses are despised and no one is respected. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withered. Sharon is like the Arabah and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. So Isaiah's working through a whole message here. He starts off with the woe to the destroyer. These bad things will come to an end. Then he moves into the God is great whilst the nations are weak and undependable. And then he's hitting the people's situation head on. There's no peace. There's no security. You can't trade properly. Agriculture has come to a standstill because war is so constant that you don't get the chance to sow and plant and reap. This is as bad as it gets. This is horrendous. He's sort of laying it out and saying this is what you can see right now. Verses 10 to 19. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned to ashes like cut thorn bushes. They will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right. Who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes. Who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. They are the ones who will dwell on the heights. Whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see these arrogant people no more, people whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. God speaks into this tumult. So you get again to repeat and to get a sense of the flow of what Isaiah is saying. Woe to the destroyer. God is great whilst the nations shake. The situation is dire. We're surrounded by death and fear and trauma. But I am coming in the midst of this and through these events that are taking place, I will bring change that will bring an end to all this evil that you see. This is the the process that Isaiah is unveiling from God. It's an interesting, in the midst of that, that Isaiah also focuses on a very important group of people. He asked the question, who can dwell with the consuming fire? He asked the question, when all this is kicking off, when all this is going on, who is it that can stand close enough to God to live with him even when judgment is raining down? And the answer is, those who walk righteously, who speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion, who keeps their hand from accepting bribes, it's, it's the righteous. And that's a constant theme 
of every message of every prophet that God is always looking for those who he wants to bring near to him who are willing to draw close, to live close and to stand close. Verses 20 to 24. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never pulled up, nor any of its robes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Now, Isaiah, having looked at, this is how bad things are, but God is going to step in, looks ahead beyond God stepping in and dealing with the immediate situation of the Assyrian invasion and all that's happening in their society at that time. He looks ahead to a point in the future where Jerusalem will begin to be what it was always meant to be. An interesting side note in the commentary I read about this said that a lot of the cities were familiar with wealth built on rivers and seas. But along with that came vulnerability. So you had cities like Nineveh, great civilizations like Babylon, who built up empires, who traded and sent their ships far and wide. But they were also vulnerable and were often attacked, as both those cities were, by ships that came the other way and in the end tore them down. Not so with Jerusalem. Jerusalem would not be vulnerable in that way because we're talking about a whole new era. Let me read verse 23 and 24 again. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. There was an occasion shortly after this where the Lord dealt with the invading army that was coming against Assyria, put to death the the fighting men, and the people had access to overwhelming amounts of plunder from the camp. This, this literal event took place. So you had people of all types, even here it says, even the lame were able to go into the camp and carry off plunder. And that's a specific fulfillment of a specific policy, uh, prophecy policy. But this looks beyond that. This goes to a greater plundering that we are only just beginning to see because it tells us that a time will come where there will be no sickness. The time will come where all sin will be forgiven. And this time, it's not an enemy camp that's being plundered, but it's hell itself that is plundered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all who are lost and separated from God in sin and all who are sick will have that opportunity to be set free so that the point will come where there is no more sin and there is no more sickness. It reminds us very much of Revelation 
21, the first four verses that describe the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens and a point in history where there is no more tears, no more suffering. So Isaiah presents this panorama of eternity. I think you'll agree that that one chapter has a broad brush, a broad scope. He starts where the people are. He starts with their fear. He starts with their situation as it is. And he runs through and says, nations have rejected God. They live without God. They're vulnerable. But God is great and God is using all these things that are happening to bring judgment, to bring people back to God. And he's willing to change hearts so that there are some who can draw close and live close to him. And the time will come when that will sweep across the whole earth and Jerusalem itself will become the city it was always designed to be as a, an example, as a signpost to the nations pointing to God. He swept through a good few centuries, covered a lot of ground. And I can imagine people looking at all that, hearing that message in their fearfulness, in their worry, in their anxiety, being maybe inspired, maybe encouraged, but also maybe asking the questions, okay, this is great, God's got a big plan. What's that got to do with me? How does that big picture of some kind of cosmic sorting out, how does that impact me and my family and the people that live in my street and our problems and our worries and our fears that are real today? How does this great, big, huge plan of God's make any difference to what I face tomorrow morning? I'm sure there are times when we all ask those sort of questions. We ask, Lord, the big picture is great. The, the, the truths of scripture are fascinating. The depth of prophecy is incredible. Where do I fit into all this? We know that, that saying, what goes around comes around. Has anyone ever said that to anyone? You know, there's two times you think of that. One, when Man United win, and you think, yeah, what goes around comes around. It's not going to happen every week. <laughs> two, when someone does something bad that you can't do anything about, you wish you could, and you just say, oh, well, what goes around comes around. We know the scripture in the book of Galatians, it tells us God cannot be mocked and man reaps what he sows. We know that. But this idea of karma, of the universe sorting itself out, is a completely different thing. It's actually not true. It's not a real thing. There is no what goes around, comes around, just happens that way. What there is instead is a God who knows every detail and a God who knows every person and a God who knows what needs to be done in every situation. So what goes around, comes around, doesn't happen by accident. Bad things being put right happens when God steps in and puts it right. God is interested in every life valuing every person providing true justice for every soul 
this justice is measured against the common standard of Christ, Christ in his perfection. And God who knows us through and through, so he knows our, our thoughts and our motives, he knows our hearts, he knows our dreams, he knows us through and through. He knows our past, our present and our future. And he never makes mistakes. He is the one that puts things right when they need to be put right. So, do you ever get distracted from trusting in God's sovereignty by wickedness and bad things that happen? Has anyone ever been made angry because something unjust happens? And you might not have actually said it, but you kind of at the back of your mind was a thought, where was God when this happened? Why did God let that happen? It's just me that thought that as well. No one else has thought that ever. You're also trusting. Strangely enough, the, the societies that we're in, and I don't just mean one nation, I mean all societies, seem to value the very people that God is talking about and addressing and saying woe to. Because in this chapter, the title of it, Woe to the Destroyer, is saying all these rulers and powerful people who seem to be in control, woe to them because their time will come. And when their time of destroying is finished, they will be destroyed. But in many societies, these strong leaders, these successful people are the very people that seem to be valued. So where God is saying, woe to them because their end's going to come, society is saying, hey, they're pretty good. You know, we look at other, other nations' leaders and we don't like them very much, but I'm guessing if you're Russian, you probably think Putin's a pretty decent leader. He's strong, his hand's on the helm, he's keeping the nation going forward. People like strong leaders people like successful people hands up who like successful people some of you do right hands up who likes really unsuccessful people who get everything wrong all the time thank you that's two of them that, I'm not encouraging you to, to prefer unsuccessful people by the way I'm just making a point that generally speaking the aspirations of society are towards the successful the celebrity kind of culture and status God sees things very differently to that. And because of wrong perspectives combined with all the chaos and things that go on in the world, we can sometimes lose sight of God really being a God who says every life counts. Uh, I've got illustration number two. Uh, are the pictures working? Excellent. Uh, if you could put the first one up. Uh, I'm guessing that most people may have seen something on the news just this last week uh, about what's happening in South Sudan at the moment and how in the last three years a million people have crossed over the border uh, from South Sudan into Uganda because of the, the renewed fighting in the civil war. When I first went to, to South Sudan 2007, things were pretty dire and pretty chaotic. And then when I went back the second time in 2011, Rebuilding had taken place and things were going well. Uh, the first time I went, Pastor, Pastor Paul gave me lots of really good advice. One of the things he said, very important, take biscuits. Uh, because you will possibly have a reaction to some of the things you might eat or drink. And it's good to have some kind of nutrient that you know it can calm your stomach down. So I did take biscuits with me. 
and it was very, very well received. I also was able to bribe a government official with custard creams, so that, that was always a handy thing to do. Uh, the second time, they actually, there was actually a shop that sold biscuits there, so I thought, to me, that was a big progress over those five years. I didn't have to take biscuits, I could now buy them in an actual supermarket type shop. Uh, there was progress, it was encouragement, things seemed to be going, and the, the, doing some little bit of charity work and bits and bobs are getting done. We were able to take books to a school, to be able to get some land and to get a water point built, and all these little tiny things, even in the midst of big chaos, seemed to give hope and, and a, a sense of progress. And then, three years ago, the fighting started in a different direction, different situation, and everything that we'd done evaporated in two months. Uh, the water point's still there, it's still working, but villages where we work in Ipkiro and uh, Majora, just outside Izo, are empty because people fled in the, into the bush and are amongst the million people that have crossed the border into Uganda. And I prayed and said, Lord, are we wasting our time? Is it just too big for the tiny little things that we can do to make any difference at all? It's, what we're doing is insignificant. It's so small. And this is so big. And I prayed and we, we didn't know what to do next. We, didn't, we couldn't hear from people what was going on because everyone was scattered far and wide. And gradually as people started to get settled and get back in touch made a few new contacts and then one day we got in touch with a man uh, called Alfred Adama who I don't know too well I know a little bit about him and he's the illustration I'm going to use now uh, this scene here is uh, three, three church workers from St. Philip's Church in Arua in Uganda the, sorry, if you go back one sorry I'm still go back to the, the crowd scene uh, that, the people they're talking to, the children they're talking to, are school pupils in one of the refugee camp primary schools. Uh, and the church workers, what they do is they meet people as they cross the border, direct them into the, the refugee camps, and then try and work, particularly with women and children who've been through traumas, to give them counselling, they do various kinds of therapies and drama therapies and they integrate them into a community because the community they had has, has gone. Uh, when you look at it, it looks a pretty normal scene, doesn't it? I was impressed when I saw it. This picture was one taken uh, on Thursday this week, so it's, it's quite a recent one. I believe the Archbishop of Canterbury, this is why I'm throwing it, I like to be contemporary, the Archbishop of Canterbury has been to, South, to, to uh, Uganda this week and he visited the, these camps. If you go on to the next one, the man on the right hand side of this picture uh, is Alfred Adama. He is the, the reason that I mentioned this whole illustration because he is the coordinator at St. Philip's Church who, use, utilizing UN funding, has run and established this program. So they reach thousands of, of children. Uh, the motorbike there is the motorbike. I, I, I'm going to be proud now. I'd like, I'd like to be, say, be a little bit proud. So we sent in this motorbike. Not literally, not like in pieces and envelopes because that would obviously take a really long time. But 
we, we didn't know what else to do and, and we had money that we would, people were donating to us. We thought, what can we do? And we've gone through this prayer and we met this man. Lord, what can we do? And we thought, well, if we get that motorbike to them, that's something practical, simple. They've got it, they can use it and it can make a difference. And that's what they use to collect people up and bring them to the refugee camps because roads are not good in the area north of Verua, apparently. The thing that intrigued me about this story is that Alfred, he's from Uganda, and the reason he has such a heart for refugees is because in the 1970s, when he was a child, he had to flee from Uganda during the time of Idi Amin and cross the border into Congo as a refugee and then grow up as a refugee. And the thought crossed my mind, at what point would he have thought, I'm significant, I can make a difference, my life can be a blessing to thousands of people? At what point did he ever think that could happen? And I'm guessing what made the difference would be Christ in him, the hope of glory. Uh, he sent a message to me. Uh, another miracle is uh, he's taught me how to use WhatsApp. So bear with me. We were having a conversation in the week along the lines of what can we do when everything seems so bad? You know, when the situation seems so big. This for us is more than refugee problems. It's for us being Christ-centered and transforming communities with the love of Christ. As each one, as each one reaches out, People must return to God and bring the nation to the feet of Christ. The children, women and young people should all be focused towards loving one another and praying and working towards a free and saved nations. People can love one another if we are created in the image of God. And God is love. Therefore, we can love too. That's the prayer we share with the church always as we remember Sudan. Now, it's a hard thing sometimes to feel that we can't make a difference. And I'm guessing that every one of us will have around us situations that we know need to change. And yet we think, I can't do anything about that. I'm not significant. And in ourselves, we're not. But we are called to become significant by being vessels that contain Christ. Our significance comes from us being where God has placed us, being filled with what God wants to fill us with and being willing to let those two things together 
change the situations that we're in. And that can be big situations and it can be small situations. The little done God's way achieves much. So, seek opportunities to pray for sick people in the name of Jesus. When you do that, your compassion will help hearts that struggle. But on the occasion when God answers your prayer, don't appear too surprised because you don't want people to think you didn't really expect it to happen, okay? Because God heals in answer to prayer as well. Seek opportunities to tell your story, to explain what Jesus has done in your life, assuming he has done something in your life. Now, has Jesus done something in your life? Has Jesus put peace in your heart? Has Jesus forgiven your sin when you said, Lord, come into my life and forgive my sin? So seek opportunities to share those stories with people and seek opportunities to do good, helping, showing love, giving, often giving in secret. And we seek these opportunities primarily by praying has anyone ever prayed the prayer in the morning on the way into work Lord give me the opportunity to to share the gospel with someone today anyone ever done that and does not God always do that God always gives us these opportunities and so let's pray it more and not be surprised when we get the opportunities and don't get stressed and worried about what happens next because maybe the person you share the gospel with that day isn't ready to listen but they are ready to hear they don't know it yet and the one thing you say might touch a nerve but it may be that you're just planting a seed as part of their journey you don't know what's going to happen with the word that you share but let's ask God to give us the opportunity to do it and if someone says I'm really struggling with sickness at the moment do we believe that God heals do we believe that in the name of Jesus the healing touch of God can come on someone and make a difference? Do we believe that God cares? All these things we believe. So let's say, Lord, give me the opportunity to pray with someone who needs prayer. The very least, your compassion will bless their hearts at the very least. And that in itself is a little miracle. But when the healing comes as well, as I say, try not appear, to appear too surprised. We've all had that where you pray for someone. God's healed and thinking like, really? <laughs> but just, just go like this. Amen. Doing these, doing these small but actually not small things are the steps that make up the walk you were called to walk. In the midst of turmoil and struggle, we learn to stop being focused on our rights, on our happiness, on what matters to us, on how we feel, and we keep that focus on what really matters and what really is important. So, in conclusion, step up to become 
the two I see run up and down the hill as many times as it takes become the man or woman that realises you are not insignificant your significance is a God given mission calling in this whole time of looking at the book of Isaiah Isaiah himself personified all these things I'm guessing there must have been moments where he actually thought Lord can I not be a prophet anymore I've heard there are better jobs than that Uh, I'm guessing he felt like that frequently actually once you've got something from God you can't really give it back can you it gets in you and and that's it really Uh, but understand that just as Isaiah was called you also are called to this mission it's a fantastic and wonderful mission and this week pray those prayers Lord give me the opportunity to share what Jesus has done give me the opportunity to pray for someone who's sick and let's see what God does that our big situation will get a better perspective on it and realise that God can use us big and small and there are people here who will impact and affect hundreds I can't say it could be you that's the lottery isn't it so we won't do that (laughs) Father God thank you for your word of truth thank you that sometimes we don't hear what we expect to hear but Lord thank you that you always hear what you want us to hear I ask now in the name of Jesus that as we walk this week claiming to be in Christ Jesus we will walk as Jesus walked taking these steps it seems so small but actually are significant thank you Jesus Amen We're going to continue our worship now with